Arlington police say protests Monday remain generally peaceful, but say there were, quote, several agitators. Send me another unit, please. Send me another unit. This is a movement, I'm telling you. They're not going to stop. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. All right, welcome back to Into the Fray. The much-anticipated vaccine is here, with some caveats. I want to be very clear on the outset. I am not here to persuade or dissuade anyone from getting this vaccine, only to inform. It's important that we all go into this with our eyes open. With everything coming out about it, the term informed consent takes on greater significance. Informed consent is a legal term common to the clinical setting. Essentially, you have to know what you're getting yourself into before a treatment or procedure can begin. Legal Dictionary defines informed consent as the act of agreeing to allow something to happen or to do something with a full understanding of all the relevant facts, including risks and available alternatives. That pretty well sums it up. Here's the trouble we run into with informed consent and COVID. Legacy media and the social media corporations have determined to censor any information about COVID and COVID-related subjects that they don't agree with. That's kind of the thing about free speech. It's paramount for free thought. If you've thought of something and I haven't, but you're not allowed to tell me about it, then I can never consider it. The real danger becomes apparent when we get into genuinely dicey subjects. Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager made a documentary about free speech recently called No Safe Spaces. They point out that in Germany, discussion of Nazism is illegal. Has that ended Nazi groups in Germany? No. They're still around. They just hide well. What it has ended is any meaningful discussion and debate on the topic. If someone's interested in Nazism, they can seek it out, but it's illegal to debate Nazi philosophy on its merits. And so there's no outlets for dissuading them. The conversations cannot be had. There can't be discussion of the relevant facts, risks, and available alternatives. There can't be any informed consent. What you end up with is uninformed consent. The social media giants are making the same mistake. They believe they know what's best for people, what people should and shouldn't think, and they're enforcing their worldview. In doing so, they're making some pretty arrogant assumptions. They are so convinced they're right, they're determined to make sure no one has the opportunity to disagree with them. I can't say whether it's misguided or nefarious, but does it matter? The old adage has been amply proven. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. From Sky News Australia, Twitter has announced a crackdown on anyone posting misleading information about COVID-19 vaccinations. Twitter has an important role to play as a place for good faith public debate and discussion around these critical public health matters. The same way they empowered public debate on hydroxychloroquine and then the coronavirus itself, Oh wait, yeah, sorry. What they meant to say was, we're going to make sure that no good faith public debate can happen by censoring all vaccine-related thought we disagree with. Back to Sky News. Under that policy, Twitter removes tweets containing inaccurate information about the nature of coronavirus, such as how it spreads within communities, the efficacy and or safety of preventative measures, treatments, or other precautions to mitigate or treat the disease, official regulations, restrictions, or exemptions pertaining to health advisories, the prevalence or risk of infection or death. We still don't completely understand this virus. Has anyone heard a valid explanation as to why when you get the cold, you know what you're in for? You get the flu, you know what you're in for. 
But when you get COVID, you could get any number of symptoms. It's a grab bag of symptoms. Maybe you get a fever. Maybe you don't. Maybe you have a cough. Maybe you don't. Maybe you lose your sense of taste and smell. Maybe you don't. Some people describe it like a really bad cold. Some people describe it like a really bad flu. Some people describe it like a really bad sinus infection. Some people it kills in like two days. Some people will never show symptoms. Tell me again that we have a solid handle on this. We still haven't been given a definitive explanation on transmission. Here's the best the CDC has to offer. This is from their official .gov website. COVID-19 is thought to spread mainly through close contact from person to person, including between people who are physically near each other within about six feet. Well, that clears things up, doesn't it? Is it through touch? Droplet? Is it airborne? This reminds me of someone I knew long ago who said that when they asked their parents, they were really little, when they asked their parents how babies were made, their parents told them it was by doing the dance of love. The girl was terrified for years of dancing because she thought it would get her pregnant. That is the level of ambiguity we're dealing with here. No one seems to know what's actually going on with the disease, so everyone's afraid to do anything. Fear is a powerful force, and that fact should be just as concerning as the disease itself. Twitter will censor information they disagree with on the efficacy and or safety of preventative measures, treatments, or other precautions to mitigate or treat the disease. They're hitting a home run on that one. They're still banning hydroxychloroquine information despite the fact that myriad doctors have prescribed it with good effect in cases caught early. We should at least be able to have the conversation. On what exactly are they basing their standard for censorship here? And does that standard itself hold up to scrutiny? What exactly is it that makes the social media giants the final word on the subject? On any subject? How about the prevalence or risk of infection or death? So far, it seems they've been inflating the risk of death information. Everywhere you turn, you're told you're selfish and you're going to kill grandma. Nobody stops to ask grandma what she thinks. Per the CDC, the survival rate after infection for ages 0 to 19 is 99.997%. For ages 20 to 49, it's 99.98. For ages 50 to 69, it's 99.5. And for ages 70 and up, it's 94.6. The serious risk starts around age 70. Then there's the vaccine itself. Both approved versions operate on essentially the same principle. Traditional vaccines use weakened or dead viruses to stimulate your body's natural immune response. When the body recognizes the foreign entities, it stimulates an immune response and produces antibodies which destroy the invaders. Both Pfizer and Moderna vaccines use messenger RNA as an intermediary. Think of the cell like a computer. DNA is the code that tells the machine how it's supposed to operate. mRNA is the executable file that turns the code into action. mRNA builds the structures inside a cell. The idea is to induce your body to target the spike protein the virus uses to attach itself to the cell. Messenger RNA is injected into the body protected in a fatty casing. Each one attaches to and enters the cell. Then it uses that cell to produce the spike proteins found on the coronavirus. Just the spike proteins. Some of those proteins emerge through the cell wall, stimulating the immune response and antibody production. The body's immune system then attacks anything presenting with that spike protein. Since the coronavirus is covered in them, the intent is their speedy demise. Oxford University and AstraZeneca are working together on another type of vaccine. This one uses a chimp adenovirus, a common cold-type virus found in chimps, but replaces part of the DNA sequencing inside the virus with that of the spike protein. When the virus infects a cell, it injects the DNA into the nucleus of the infected cell, which induces the cell to produce the spike protein. From there, it works basically the same way I described above. There's a third option, 
a whole inactivated virus vaccine. This is one type of traditional vaccine. Dead virus with no active genetic material, but intact external antigen structures, is injected into the body. When the immune system comes in contact with those external structures and recognizes them as a foreign entity, the natural immune response is triggered and the antibodies are produced. Sinovac Biotech has developed a whole inactivated COVID vaccine and has applied for emergency use authorization from the FDA alongside Pfizer and Moderna, Oxford, AstraZeneca, and others. Now, side effects. I'm only going to speak to the side effects of the mRNA vaccines because they're the only ones we have public dissemination information for. According to ABC10 San Diego, most of the side effects range from moderate to severe fatigue and headache, with many reporting symptoms interfered with their daily activity. Moderna produced a higher rate of severe side effects than Pfizer. Reports indicate that these side effects tended to last from about a day to a day and a half. The CDC is reporting one to three days. From the CDC report, before vaccination, providers should counsel mRNA COVID-19 vaccine recipients about expected local and systemic post-vaccination symptoms. Local symptoms include pain, swelling, arrhythmia, which is redness, at the injection site, localized auxiliary lymph adenopathy, inflamed lymph nodes, on the same side as the vaccinated arm. Systemic symptoms include fever, fatigue, headache, chills, myalgia, which is muscle pain, and arthralgia, joint pain. Depending on vaccine products, Pfizer versus Moderna, age group and vaccine dose, approximately 80 to 89% of vaccinated persons developed at least one local symptom, and 55 to 83% develop at least one systemic symptom following vaccination. Before I read the rest of this paragraph from the CDC, I should interject here that most of these are common to a lot of vaccines that we don't really even blink at. However, recipients have reported that they have been pretty severe. Back to the report. Most systemic post-vaccination symptoms are mild to moderate in severity, occur within the first three days of vaccination, and resolve within one to three days of onset. These symptoms are more frequent and more severe following the second dose and among younger persons compared to older persons. Unless persons develop a contraindication to vaccination, they should be encouraged to complete the series even if they develop local or systemic symptoms following the first dose to optimize protection against COVID-19. The Washington Times talked to the clinical trial patients themselves. They reported, The patients themselves put it better. I started shaking. I had cold and hot rushes. I was sitting by the phone all night long thinking, should I call 911? Nobody prepared me for the severity of this said Luke Hutchinson, 43, to Science Magazine about his shot. Another subject, Ian Hayden, told Science Magazine in its report that he experienced chills along with headache, muscle ache, fatigue, nausea, so bad he went to urgent care. His adverse reactions dimmed about 24 hours after his shot, but not before he vomited and fainted. That's a little bit worse than I typically get from the flu vaccine. Several cases of anaphylaxis have resulted from the vaccine. Anaphylaxis happens when allergen response overreacts in two or more body systems. It is life-threatening. The day after the public administration of the Pfizer vaccine began in the UK, the government issued a warning that the vaccine should not be administered unless resuscitative measures were available. Investigations into the root cause of the reactions is ongoing. Two healthcare workers were hospitalized in Genoa, Alaska, and four others at Advocate Condell Medical Center near Chicago. The Chicago incident caused that hospital to halt administration for investigation. A hospital statement was released. Out of an abundance of caution, we are temporarily pausing vaccinations at Condell, which will allow us time to better understand what may have caused these reactions, the hospital said in a statement. Let me clarify the phrase, out of an abundance of caution. 
In common English, it roughly translates to, what just happened? This is bad. Okay, everybody stop what you're doing until we figure this out. The CDC reported, anaphylaxis following vaccination was not observed in the Pfizer, BioNTech, or Moderna COVID-19 vaccine trials. However, anaphylactic reactions have been reported following receipt of the Pfizer, BioNTech, COVID-19 vaccine during vaccinations outside of clinical trials, meaning out in the public. Appropriate medical treatment used to manage immediate allergic reactions must be immediately available in the event that an acute anaphylactic reaction occurs following administration of an mRNA COVID-19 vaccine. Vaccine providers should observe patients with a history of anaphylaxis, due to any cause, for 30 minutes after vaccination. All other persons should be observed for 15 minutes after vaccination to monitor for the occurrence of immediate adverse reactions. Of even more concern is the political and social bait-and-switch we're beginning to see. There are calls coming out for vaccination documentation, everything from papers to ID cards to a barcode on an app on your phone. It gets better. From The Blaze. Vin Gupta, MD, identifies himself in his Twitter profile as a medical analyst for NBC News and a lung ICU doc for the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Dr. Gupta made the comments on Meet the Press Sunday in response to news that one of the first people in America to receive the COVID-19 vaccine was excited because it meant they would be free to travel. Gupta chastised the individual who planned to travel, saying, Just for you viewers out there, I know one of the officials who we just saw getting vaccinated is planning on traveling after the second dose. This is a source of confusion. This is one of the misperceptions out there. Just because you get vaccinated with that second dose does not mean you should be participating in things like traveling in the middle of an out-of-control pandemic, or that you're liberated from wearing masks. Gupta continued, Everything still applies until after all of us get the two-dose regimen. That's never going to happen. You're never going to have everyone getting the two-dose regimen. There are going to be people who refuse. There are going to be people who have allergic reactions, like we've seen. There are going to be people who have conditions and they cannot be vaccinated. We are never going to reach a point where everyone has received the two-dose regimen. Whatever happened to 15 days to slow the spread? Now they're pushing the goalpost out to the end of 2021, or in some cases, mid-2022. We'll get back to this. Something doesn't smell right. Then there's the question, can it be made mandatory? Can the vaccine be required by your employer, your kid's school, the airlines? The general answer seems to be probably, but no one's sure yet. At the end of the day, it really comes down to whether an organization wants to make it mandatory and whether there are any higher government bodies willing to stop them. There are plenty of vaccines that are mandatory for attendance within the public school system. Some employers, particularly in the healthcare field, have successfully mandated the flu vaccine every year the only exception being for those excused by a doctor for a documented medical contraindication. The question is likely less, can the vaccine be mandatory? And more, will your school, governor, or employer make it mandatory? One of the strangest legislation provisions is lawsuit immunity for these pharmaceutical companies. From NBC New York, you can't sue Pfizer or Moderna if you have severe COVID vaccine side effects. The government likely won't compensate you for damages either. The federal government has granted companies like Pfizer and Moderna immunity from liability if something unintentionally goes wrong with their vaccines. It's very rare for a blanket immunity law to be passed, said Rogue Dunn, a Dallas labor and employment attorney. Pharmaceutical companies typically aren't offered much liability protection under the law. You also can't sue the Food and Drug Administration for authorizing a vaccine for emergency use, nor can you hold your employer accountable if they mandate inoculation as a condition of employment. Congress created a fund specifically to help cover lost wages and out-of-pocket medical expenses for people who have been irreparably harmed by a 
covered countermeasure, such as a vaccine, but it is difficult to use and rarely pays. Attorneys say it has compensated less than 6% of the claims filed in the last decade. Of course, wherever there's government health care, there are rationing committees. Who gets the vaccine first? Really, this should be easy. First, the people directly caring for the sick. They're at constant risk of exposure. Then, the most vulnerable, which in our case are the nursing home residents. So far, it seems we're all pretty much on the same page. The problems come after those two groups have been managed. Who comes after that? The two primary arguments are age before beauty versus social justice equity. The obvious answer is that those most at risk of death should be prioritized. Since that's the older populations, an Excel spreadsheet makes short work of it. Sort by birth date. The SJW elitists would like their ideology to determine priority. This is where things start getting genuinely scary. The New York Times recently posted an article on the argument of an age-based rollout versus an intersectionality equity rollout. Here are a couple of beautiful quotes from the SJW elitists. Mark Lipsitch, an infectious disease epidemiologist at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, argued that teachers should not be included as essential workers if a central goal of the committee is to reduce health inequities. Teachers have middle-class salaries and are often white, and they have college degrees, he said. Of course, they should be treated better, but they're not among the most mistreated of workers. The most mistreated of workers. There's the intersectionality hierarchy of grievances coming into play again. Harold Schmidt, an expert in ethics and health policy at the University of Pennsylvania, said that it is reasonable to put essential workers ahead of older adults, given their risks, and that they are disproportionately minorities. Older populations are wider, Dr. Schmidt said. Society is structured in a way that enables them to live longer. Instead of giving additional health benefits to those who already had more of them, we can start to level the playing field a bit. Once again, we're treated to the argument that if you're white, you're privileged. Tell that to Greater Appalachia. Tell that to the Asians who are quoted out of college acceptance for being Asian. And at the same time, they're told that they're white and privileged. This is the product of the left's hierarchy of intersectionality. We are not seeing a natural resurgence of racist fervor. It's being fabricated and strategically injected back into our society, pervading even the rollout of a vaccine. How about this level the playing field comment that implies white people need to die in the name of equity? Didn't we leave eugenics back in the 20th century? Margaret Sanger wanted to eliminate the black race. Hitler wanted to exterminate the Jews. I still can't figure out if Stalin intended his Ukrainian genocide or if it was just a byproduct of his plans and he was good with it. Now it appears that white people are on the block. Truth be told, it's possible that they're doing white people a favor. Reports of the vaccine side effects started before it was even released for public use. Do you remember how the media spent a couple of months prepping the American people for post-election vote counting chaos and delays? CNN started prepping the vaccine narrative back at the beginning of the month. Dr. Helen Talbot was the only dissenting vote on a panel of 14 CDC vaccine advisors deciding whether to recommend an early COVID vaccine rollout for nursing home residents. She told CNN, I've spent my career studying vaccines in older adults, and we have traditionally tried a vaccine in a young, healthy population and then hope it works for our frail older adults, she told the committee ahead of her vote. And so we enter this realm of, we hope it works and we hope it's safe, and that concerns me on many levels. After reading that, this comment further down the page really caught my attention. Dr. Kelly Moore, the Associate Director of the Immunization Action Coalition, an organization that informs the public on vaccinations, said... One of the things we want to make sure people understand is that they should not be unnecessarily alarmed if there are reports, once we start vaccinating, of someone or multiple people dying within a day or two of their vaccinations who are residents at a long-term care facility. 
That would be something we would expect, as a normal occurrence, because people die frequently in nursing homes. That's good advice. We shouldn't be unnecessarily alarmed. We should be just the right amount of alarmed. Meaning, this hasn't been tested on this population, and if some of our nursing home residents are dying within days of vaccination, maybe we should earnestly look into this. It's the fact that they know how severe the side effects can be for younger people, and the admittance that there has been no testing on the elderly population, that makes this statement seem duplicitous. Back to the New York Times article and Social Justice-Informed Healthcare, an independent committee of medical experts that advises the CDC on immunization practices will soon vote on whom to recommend for the second phase of vaccination, Phase 1B. In a meeting last month, all voting members of the committee indicated support for putting essential workers ahead of people 65 and older and those with high-risk health conditions. Historically, the committee relied on scientific evidence to inform its decisions, but now the members are weighing social justice concerns as well, noted Lisa A. Prosser, a professional of health policy and decision sciences at the University of Michigan. Once the committee votes, Dr. Redfield will decide whether to accept its recommendations as the official guide of the agency. Only rarely does a CDC director reject a recommendation from the committee. The same people who call the right science deniers and racist are denying science and basing healthcare policy on race. They're rejecting a simple solution and injecting a host of irrelevant benchmarks in the name of their ideology. Let me show you just how far this goes. From an article published by NPR, California health officials have made clear they want equity and transparency to be among the main priorities in deciding how to allocate the first scarce supplies of a vaccine. For example, in divvying up the first doses for healthcare workers, the state is prioritizing hospitals located in low-income areas before those in wealthy areas. At the first meeting of the committee on November 25th, Hendrick introduced the idea of considering historical injustice as a factor in deciding which groups would be the next to get the vaccine, after healthcare workers. At the second meeting, a few days later, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, the state's Surgeon General and a co-chair of the committee, said, We heard you. We, of course, want to be evidence-based. We, of course, want to use the highest standards of rigor, she told the group. And at the same time, we want to reflect what we're hearing from this group. Let me stop there a moment. The two are incompatible. You can either provide evidence-based care, or you can provide ideologically-based care. They are incompatible. Competing interests. By its definition, evidence-based care does not care about opinions. It doesn't care about emotions. It cares about evidence. Back to the article. Rather than defining equity as everyone having a fair opportunity to attain their full potential, as the World Health Organization does, Burke Harris instead proposed adopting a definition from the U.S. Office of Minority Health, which says achieving health equity requires efforts to address avoidable inequalities and historical and contemporary injustices. That is affirmative action. That's choosing one group over another, says Lawrence Gostin, a professor of global health at Georgetown University. In recent rulings, the U.S. Supreme Court has imposed strict rules on how affirmative action can be used in higher education, and Ghostin thinks that federal courts will very likely be hostile to its use in public health. Such litigation could slow down implementation of a vaccine rollout. Instead of using race, he says, the state should focus on a combination of other factors that can capture race. They're not even hiding the fact that they know what they're doing is illegal and unethical. They're openly admitting to finding routes that obfuscate their real intent in order to circumvent the law. Once again, we herald back to the wisdom of J.K. Rowling. Voldemort instructed Harry in the very first book, There is no good and evil. There is only power. And those too weak to seek it. They're unashamed that what they're doing is purposefully illegal because it furthers their aim. 
We have to show our representatives, and by extension the bureaucrats whose paychecks they owe to our legislatures, that we will hold them accountable. One way to start that is recall Gavin 2020. Oust the likes of Gavin Newsom, and like Ryan pointed out last week, that'll get their attention. That'll get the attention of every other politician and put them on notice. Whether this vaccine is a good idea for you personally or not, the way it's being handled is unacceptable. As I stated at the beginning, I'm not trying to persuade or dissuade anyone regarding COVID vaccination. Primarily, I'm trying to show you what COVID is revealing about the precarious volatility of our political climate. We're regressing, and it's not a slow regression either. The hierarchy of intersectionality now dictates policy. When it comes to the vaccine itself, I want everyone to go into this with their eyes open. And that's getting more and more difficult as the tech giants who control the flow of information continue to censor what they disagree with. All of this information is available, and more, but you have to actually go looking for it. Which means you have to know it's there to begin with. Take this choice seriously. Look into the pros and cons. Look into the benefits and the side effects. Weigh your options and come to an informed decision. Tucker Carlson ranted about the vaccine rollout a few nights ago. He hit the nail on the head with his assessment. The something's not right here factor on this one is off the charts. The question that remains is, what is it that's not right? Here's some of what Carlson had to say. The coronavirus vaccine has been accompanied by the kind of corporate image campaign you typically associate with higher-end consumer products. Imagine the rollout for a Hollywood blockbuster, the new iPhone. That's what it's like. Suddenly the COVID vaccine is on the morning shows. It's being touted on celebrity Twitter accounts. And the news about it is uniformly glowing. This stuff is just great. A lot of famous people say so. So how are the rest of us supposed to respond to a marketing campaign like this? Well, nervously. Even if you're strongly supportive of vaccines, and we are, even if you recognize how many millions of lives have been saved over the past 50 years by vaccines, and we do, it all seems a bit much. It feels false. Because it is. It's too slick. Stop with the slogans. Better to treat Americans like adults, explain the benefits, be honest about the risks, and let the rest of us decide. Suddenly the rules have changed. Their view is to do what you're told and don't complain. And no uncomfortable questions. Those aren't just suggestions, they're rules, and Silicon Valley claims to enforce them. Twitter announced a new policy to censor any unauthorized inquiry about the vaccine. Whatever you do, don't say this is social control. Because if you do, the richest and most powerful people in the world will act in perfect coordination to shut you down immediately. So, to repeat, there's no social control going on here. None. And if you suggest otherwise, Twitter's social controls will censor you. Tucker Carlson nailed it with that one. Dr. Fauci, the face of the coronavirus response in the United States, attended a conference covered by CNBC. He said, I was talking with my UK colleagues who were saying the UK is similar to where we are now, because each of our countries have that independent spirit, he said on stage. I can understand that, but now is the time to do what you're told. And there it is. That's what doesn't smell right about this. Now is the time to do what you're told. That, right there, if it remains unchecked, is the end of self-government. It is the end of inalienable rights. It is the end of the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity. It is the end of government by, for, and of the people. Contained in that statement is government by, for, and of the elites. And you, plebeians, it's time for you to do what you're told. Nah, I'll pass. I'm going to leave it there. As always, you can find me on Twitter and Parler at Real Into the Fray. I'll be back next week. Till then, be informed, stay safe, don't do anything stupid. Thank you.